Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. War Daddy here. I hope you found that last little Monuments and the American Soul episode both entertaining, edifying, and hopefully at least a little bit challenging. Now, I know that was a break from our usual style, but since this battle for the understanding of the American past is trending towards a kind of forever war, one that's constantly evolving and will continue to be fought over, I hope you won't mind if I expand our scope of inquiry to include those that currently find themselves on the front lines of this war for the truth of the American past. Can you just count to five real quick? One, two, All three. Right, you're good. Perfect. <clears throat> okay. Who better to help shed light on this controversy than those charged with teaching American students the history of their own country? Which brings me to my buddy Josh. Logging in my attendance for class. I just finished it, had a nice little discussion on industrialism, and it was good, man. <laughs> nice. Oh, man, I was just uh, doing some industrialism research last night. What you're about to hear is the first of three interviews with historians, educators, and active military personnel. So, um, how do I want to start this? And yes, this is yet another diversion from our usual format, and perhaps at least a little bit outside of my comfort zone. Your role with these kids as a teacher. I'm going to start over. Hold on, because... I'm not recording. Wow, that's good. <laughs> but uh, I promise, I will get the hang of this uh, Joe Rogan, Michael Barbaro casual conversation interview style eventually. So with no further preamble, here's my conversation with American educator and War Daddy collaborator, Joshua Cabrell. Josh, how you doing? Uh, doing awesome. Well, I just really appreciate you having me on the War Daddy podcast. It is one of my favorites by far. Thank you very much. That's that's very adorable, and I appreciate you. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you in no small part have helped me uh, get this thing going, helping me with so much of the research and just spooling out the ideas that that come up on a daily basis. So, your your role in the world is teaching young minds about history, and I think now especially that is such a it's kind of a, a sacred task right now. Can you tell me just a little bit about your background and what you're up to? Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I went to uh, college, I went to Rutgers University and I studied history and criminal justice. I, I double majored, uh, not because that's anything crazy hard, just to use, you know, the credits kind of worked out that way. So uh, it was pretty awesome. And then I went back and got my continuing education so I could teach. Uh, I started off as a substitute teacher. Uh, did that for... Um, while I was finishing college. And then when I finished, I spent three years as a paraprofessional in the, the life skills room helping special needs children. So not so much history there, but certainly learned a lot about how to communicate with others and uh, a lot of invaluable lessons. And then uh, since then, for about eight years, I've been uh, teaching uh, criminal justice, um, different areas of American history, as well as uh, an AP human geography class, which is also really interesting. So I've been able and lucky enough to, to teach a number of different history courses. Awesome. And so the, the, the age group that you have in your classrooms there, it's, it's high school, right? It's how, how old are these kids? Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, it's varying age groups for sure. So when I teach criminal justice, uh, that's any age group. Um, when I teach U.S. history one, that goes from you know, like arrival in America through about the Civil War and Reconstruction. Um, and that's uh, sophomores. And then U.S. history two kind of picks up there and goes, you know, you hope to get through World War Two and at least find out who won. 
Uh, it's probably important. So yeah. that's two years. And then uh, AP yeah. Human Geography is uh, usually upperclassmen, mostly seniors. Uh, and then this year also I'm teaching a, a American Studies 60s to 90s class, and that's an, an elective um, where it's usually upperclassmen. Awesome. You know, you definitely don't want a, a cliffhanger at World War II. I feel like that's just not no. fair. <laughs> yeah, definitely don't want that. So with this specific age, age group, which, you know, as, as old as I feel that I am now, it doesn't feel like all that long ago. And I think about what I knew or what I thought of new and how I learned it, whether it was in the classroom or not. This is when you're really just kind of figuring out what the hell happened and how we got here. And the classroom is a great way to get that. I, movies and TV, I know they sculpted us and pop culture and stuff like that. But as someone who is actually on team history, you know, you, your your duty is to fill in the map for these kids, especially about America and, and why we are the way that we are. As a teacher for this specific age group, what do you believe your duty is as an educator? You know, that's a really good question, Will. Um, and, and I think sometimes when people think about teaching history, uh, whether it's a high school level or another one, I, I don't know if people always think about that. Uh, as far as the, the duty is, I, I never believe that it's my duty to uh, ever express, first of all, an opinion on different historical topics. Um, I always feel like my duty as a, as a history teacher is to provide them with the resources and with the history uh, on both sides of, of different topics. Um, and so then to lead the, the students to make their decision on things, um, whatever the topic may be. Right. So you, I want to help them provide resources, learn how to analyze those sources um, and then, you know, figuring out also if it's a reliable source. Right. Um, I think it's really important. Maybe I picked up some of this from, I guess, the criminal justice background is, uh, you know, if you look at a case, you always want to look at both sides. Right. If you only heard the defendant side, you may have a certain perception. If you only heard the prosecution side, you may have a, a certain perspective. You really, truly need to try to get a full 360 degree understanding of any historical topic to be able to form an accurate opinion. I, I've always believed. Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely totally fair, especially now in a time when there is so much information at the uh, tips of our fingers. You know, when we were in high school and you had a question about World War II or something, you would, you know, probably throw in Private Ryan to answer that question or whatever it is. Now yeah. you can dive into so much resource. Uh, it's just, it's a resource-rich environment. And at the same time, that's also kind of freaky because you get so much bad shit out there too. And one of the one of the things that scares me the most sometimes is when if you're not in high school or you're not teaching it, you don't exactly know what's still in the curriculum. And I think yeah. right now there's a really big spotlight on some really kind of heinous shit that's being taught to our children or maybe the way that it's being taught. And I do understand bringing both sides. And, and I know that, you know, like you said, from a case point, it's, it's important to do that. But, you know, just throwing just two really simple examples uh, at you is, you know, in, in Texas textbooks, and of course, this always ends up being freaking Texas, but they've been referring to enslaved Africans in 1775 on maps and stuff like that as immigrants, like right next to Dutch, Scottish, Germans, when they're 
talking about how many were there, you know, as if they had a choice to, quote, immigrate. It, it's absurd things like that. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, they've been doing a lot of research into this, and they found that, like, very few American high school students know that slavery was a main cause of the Civil War. They don't necessarily know that the Constitution did have mechanisms of protecting slavery without explicitly mentioning it, mentioning it, and that ending slavery actually required a constitutional amendment to do so. You know, these are things that that's kind of, they're glaring and they're scary. Do you experience anything in your day-to-day where you look at something and you're like, okay, I know that's not right. Is there anything like that for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, for me personally, I can obviously only speak to my personal experience. I haven't really experienced that. Our administration that I work with and the other teachers that I work with largely have the same philosophy um, where it's important to show all sides um, and we take great care in, in doing that. Um, and, and we do believe it's important. And cause obviously, you know, you, you share ideas and share resources about how to, uh, approach different topics. So I feel like I have a pretty good idea of our department and how we do that. So me personally, I haven't experienced that. I, I also haven't seen that in the different textbooks that, that we use. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not out there, obviously. I, I know I, I saw the same uh, article that you were referring to in regards to uh, that Texas uh, textbook, and I, and I couldn't believe it. We actually had a little bit of a discussion about it um, in my class. So one thing I do with my class is this year, obviously, it's, it's a very different teaching year. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and mm-hmm. you know, we, some of it is done virtually. Um, you know, we, do, we do a hybrid schedule where some's in person, some, some is virtual. And uh, one of the and this happened in two classes, right? My US two uh, classes, I had two different students do this article in both in each class, which was awesome because I got to talk to them about them with them. And the the article that, that you were referring to was speaking about, you know, what kind of history are we teaching our kids? And you know, I don't remember the exact title, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it mentioned all the things that you were talking about. And so I asked my kids uh, a question and I said, hey, uh, you know, do you guys feel like you're getting all sides of history when you're taught it? Um, now, I, I, I totally realize that, you know, me being a teacher asking that, I may not get a, a straight answer from them um, because I'm their teacher. Maybe they're afraid right. that I'll, I'll think less of them with that. They're, I totally they, they take that into account. They just can't know what they don't know kind of thing, too. Yeah, that's true, too. That, that's, really, that's a really important point. Um, I think that – so this is what I got from both classes. The, mm. the first class – they also they felt like they have gotten a fair because I asked them all and they all seemed to agree. Some of them elaborated on getting the good, the bad, and the in between of history. The second class, I brought it up again and I did the same thing, and they all agreed. But I got a little bit of extra feedback from. Um, they they seem to feel that way, um, but then one girl mentioned that she's like, you know, I feel like we do get a a very fair. Uh, you know, I guess, account of history. She's like, but I've only felt that since I got to high school. She said, I feel like when we're a little bit younger, we're in a way kind of protected from some of the parts of history uh, because they don't want to give us certain perceptions at the time. So that was her her perception on it, uh, which was interesting to hear, right? So I I don't know exactly how they go about teaching subjects on a middle school or elementary school level. 
But she feels like that now. And I didn't have this student last year either. But she said so she felt like the, the, the teachers in our school have done a good job of, of better explaining that. So, so that's why I think that maybe they feel like they are getting a fuller understanding now in high school because they realize maybe they didn't get a full picture before. But like I said, I don't, wouldn't know for sure mm-hmm. because I, I don't teach at the elementary or, or middle school level. Right. And also, you know, it's kind of ask, I, to preface where you're teaching, you're, you're in New Jersey. This is quite a Northern yep. blue state. So, you know, I think if it's going to be somewhere, you're going to get a more straight and forward kind of approach, especially to the really sticky shit. Like when you get to civil war and things like that, you know, up here, we're probably going to do a pretty better job comparatively. I, you know, it's, it's hard to know, um, based on the existing model that you're teaching from, this is kind of the first time that I've ever really been conscious of it, but it seems to me that there is soon coming kind of a, a, a sea change here with how we're going to be teaching history. And one of those uh, herald, one of the heralds of that sea change would be the 1619 curriculum. Um, I know we've talked about this, but for people that may not have heard about this yet, um, it, it was started as a New York Times podcast and also a series of articles, which has now been uh, developed into a history curriculum. And one of the main kind of provocative pieces of it is the it's called 1619 because 1619 is the first is the year that slaves were first imported into america and it kind of asks people americans to conceptualize that year 1619 as the nation's true birth year and thinking of slavery first and foremost as a bedrock foundation of the u.s I'd love to hear what you think about that. Not only about, you know, we can get into the kind of the fairness and merits of that, but this is pretty new of a concept. You know, it's definitely starkly different than what I remember. And I'm sure what's going on right now. Do you think that this is a change that you support and want to see? What are your thoughts on that? So um, I did a a decent amount of research on, on the 1619 project and, and read, you know, uh, as, as we were talking about another time, you know, whenever we start researching something, it, it prompts us to go down a rabbit hole and you start <laughs> before yeah. you know it, it's an extra like four hours of research. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are a lot of, of, of important things to discuss about the 1619 project. Um, I do, however, have certain reservations about certain aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there is, I mean, you could pull out so many good, I don't want to say good, right? That's probably the wrong word, right? Important things to talk about um, that are in the, the 1619 project. However, there's some things in there that I feel like don't, as I said before, give the entire picture. Like I have no problem bringing up everything in there, but I would also have to uh, talk about some of the, the counter arguments to that because I think that some of it is not um, settled on history, you could say. Right. Is that kind of sense? Yeah, no, it's totally fair because there, there's this one, there's the one line that I, I read and it also made me kind of like, all right, wait, hold on. And I'll, I'll quote it right now. Um, one of the, one of their like letterheads is quote, one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery as abolitionist sentiment began to rise in Britain. And I think that might be one of the ones where almost anyone who uh, I don't I don't know too many people who wouldn't hear that and be like wait what and, and that's got to be one of your flashpoints am I correct yeah yeah c- certainly is and, and look I, I take history from the approach of 
I, I never want to be so ingrained in one way of thinking that I'm not willing to change my mind. Right. Mm -hmm. Because there's always new, like, I, I can't tell you the amount of times where I've learned new things and I'm like, Oh, maybe that's not exactly the way I thought about it. But the more research I did on, on that specific part of it, um, I, I found it kind of hard to, to see that, like, that's obviously a pretty big claim, right? Because mm -hmm. that, that's not something that is, is normally taught. And there's been a lot of, you know, historians that are very renowned that have refuted this part of the 1619 project. Mm -hmm. So I have no problem maybe, you know, bringing up that this is a point the 1619 project comes up and maybe having a debate about it in class. Because if you have a debate about it, then you can learn more. Right? I have absolutely no problem with that. But presenting it as a fact, I have a little bit of a challenge with that because it's, it's not settled on history. And, um, you know, I wouldn't even tell students that I disagree or agree with it. I would let them make their own decision on that, which I think is important. But when I look at the facts behind it, uh, it's it, it doesn't really seem to, you know, I'd like to see the, the argument behind it. She kind of says it. Right. But then doesn't yeah. really give a whole lot of latitude to, you know, a whole lot of extra information on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, it is it is definitely one of those kind of murky things there. Uh, and it is it's pretty it's an audacious claim. And I don't think that they're saying that it is the number one and only reason. But just to kind of get into a couple of like the, the nitty grittiness of this argument. There is evidence that shows that America was in their founding documents and the constitutions were doing everything that they could to protect slavery and also try and kill it in the future. And it's that kind of like crazy dichotomy that it, I think that's what's one of the most confounding things about understanding America is that these two things happen simultaneously. And, you know, teaching it from the perspective of the slave is not something that's ever really been done before but even when you look at the the first you know the first times you really get to think about getting rid of slavery all the way back in 1775 it really wasn't much of a thing for the you know there there were northern movements that were pushing in one way or another but the first time you really get a chance to see how people feel about it is, uh, I, I'm not sure, this is a little archaic, but it was called the Dunmore Proclamation. It's simply yep. simply put, do you, do you happen to know this one off the top? Maybe not. Yeah, no, I do know, I do know that okay, one. Okay, cool. And, uh, I think that's a, did you want to talk about it first, then I can chime in? No, no, I'm sure you got it. I'll, I, have a, I have a Washington quote here that kind of like freaked me out a little bit, but go ahead. Tell oh, what, what do you, what? I'd love to hear that first, because then maybe I could, I could bring both together besides the Dunmore thing. Yeah, so uh, George Washington. So in the in the Dunmore Proclamation, it was a uh, a, a British uh, commander who had promised to. This is in 1775, as the war was happening, the rebellion was happening. He declared that all indentured servants, Negroes or others, will be free if they are willing to bear arms. And you can kind of see the Americans look around and say, "All right, if that happened, all of these." African-American people who are here would automatically become like a fifth column. It would just be people. It's not like the British have to bring them over. There would be 
already an insurrection within the United States, well, not the U.S. at that point. And there's places like in South Carolina where 65% of the people in South Carolina were African-American slaves. So you could see how this is like pretty freaking scary and using abolition as a weapon could definitely be a very useful tool for the British. And so the, the Washington quote described it as, he described Dunmore as the arch traitor to the rights of humanity. Which is just like, what? <laughs> like, I, I I don't understand how, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's so yeah. contrary to, to the understanding of what the rights of humanity is that it just, it freaks me out. And if we don't hold this up and hand it to our the children who need to learn this stuff, like I, there's one phrase that I'll borrow from you because you use it so well, is teaching the controversy. What yes. do you think about yes. teaching this controversy? So when you look at Lord Dunmore's proclamation, this is the challenge I have with it. And I think it is a really interesting point, and I totally think it should be talked about. But I have a couple of things that don't quite make sense to me as far as being a main cause for uh, the you know people rebelling. So first of all, um, according to the timeline of when it was, the Lexington and Concord battles would have already happened, as well as many of the other leading causes of the Revolutionary War, right? For sure. Um, and the, the other part of this is, you know, uh, with Lord Dunmer's proclamation, right, um, it was obviously clearly a, a British strategy designed to unsettle the southern colonies, uh, which, you know, I, I don't think is necessarily a, a bad strategy, right? It clearly unsettled them, you know, to a degree. Yeah. Um, and it did propel hundreds of enslaved people off plantations and turned, you know, some southerners over to the patriot side even, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it also led most of the 13 colonies to arm and employ free and enslaved black people with the promise of freedom to those who served in the armies. Now, neither side kept those promises really fully, right? Right, Uh, Either Americans or British. Um, But thousands of enslaved people were still, you know, freed as a result overall of those policies. So because of the timeline of it, I don't really know if that's a, I could say that that's a direct cause. You could say it has a correlation maybe, but as far as being, you know, a, a co- like correlation and, and causation, I think are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. You know, if you correlate a little bit with it while not being a, a main cause there, right? Because there's so many mm-hmm. other things going on. And then when you look at like the, the documents they sent over to Britain, like the Olive Branch petition and, you know, their other uh, petitions to the king, you know, I tried to do a little research on this and mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but I haven't seen anything mentioned there about slavery and the, the part about being able to, to keep it. So I would imagine if it was a main cause, you would probably address that with the king. Because they were still trying to have peace, like the Olive Branch tradition, they're talking about yeah. still being loyal British subjects. It's, it's and, pre-independence or pre-signing of the independence, correct? Uh, yes, that should be like pre-signing of, yeah. of independence yeah, because, yeah. like, the Declaration of Independence, they're like, all right, well, we're going to go now. You yeah, know what I mean? Like, <laughs> fuck you um, on that. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, does that kind of make a little bit of sense? Why I'm not like completely sold on yeah. that one, and and. Yeah. I totally, totally agree, especially because, yeah, you do have Lexington and Concord. You do have – you, there's blood being spilt over the rebellion right now at, at this point, and using that is clearly – it's damn good propaganda for the British to use it. If it if it worked out in any way, shape, or form, it's going to be helpful to them because, you know, they're probably still not respecting the uh, these new Americans on the same level as, like, a real army at this point still. But what it does, I think – is it puts slavery and the the support of it on the playing field. You know, it takes slavery out of this kind of like, well, they just had it. 
it makes it much more of a live hand grenade that's going to be tossed back and forth. And it's super sticky because think about when they're drafting the Constitution later, but even the Declaration of Independence and all the pressure to specifically protect slavery in these founding documents, that's when it gets even more sticky because it's funny because we don't really have like the word slavery does not appear in the Constitution or or the Declaration. And that's kind of like, you know, unlike the Articles of Confederation in the Civil War, where it's like it's freaking everywhere. You're right. It is kind of expunged from that American founding uh, text. But at the same time, the amount of uh, wiggling that the founders had to work into that document to not only protect slavery, but also not mention it because there's a lot of rancor with it in America. Some of the people in in Europe are the ones not laughing at, but since certainly crying out that, hey, you guys are screaming about human liberty and you're keeping slaves, which is just sanctimonious bullshit, which there's a pretty good argument there. But with the Constitution being deliberately ambiguous and working very hard not to mention keeping slavery in it, it shows the amount of shame, maybe not shame, but they didn't want to have this in this founding document for this reason. They didn't want to be recriminated by it in their founding documents. And maybe it's not the smoking gun of like, hey, obviously they were trying to keep slavery because I just, I don't think you can say that America, maybe you can't say that America's main reason, definitely not the main reason to leave was because of slavery, but they definitely wanted to keep it, and there's efforts of that everywhere. So I think that you make a lot of really interesting points. But however, at the same point, as as I always say, I think it's important to look at the other side too, because, you know, as the Constitution, you know, that's not really, once again, settled on history. There are many people that don't think the Constitution is a, a pro-slavery document, one of them being Frederick Douglass, as I'm sure you're yeah, aware, sure. right? Yep. If you ever look into his What Be the Slave, uh, the Fourth of July, something along those lines speech, mm-hmm. right? he talks a lot about that the, the Constitution is a, a glorious liberty document, sure. right? So, and now look, this wasn't settled on at that time either, right? There was many abolitionists that felt, as you just said, right, that this was more of a, a pro-slavery constitution, right? D- Douglas and others, uh, other abolitionists at the time, right, they were kind of split on this. He, he did not believe this. this. is actually one of the reasons why him and William Lloyd Garrison, another leading abolitionist uh, of the time, kind of didn't see eye to eye on this. Mm-hmm. And so what I tried to look for to, to understanding this a little bit more is trying to figure out what happened in the, the constitutional convention where they're deciding on these things. So there were motions um to, to talk about the word slaves, right? So uh, what I, I, I found is that motions were made by South Carolina and Georgia, and a big surprise, yeah, right, right. <laughs> uh, to use the word slaves in, in, in the documents of the Constitutional Convention. But people, you know, made sure that they, they took it out. Um, a lot of people believe that the founders expected slavery to die away, and there are certain quotes that you can, you can find on that. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that's a thousand percent true, but at the same time, I think we need to at least look at that at the same time and let other people decide. So I would never say it's either a pro-slavery or an anti-slavery document. I think you got to look at both both sides. Now, if you look at like the Confederate constitutions, like by the Civil War, they're pretty proud of slavery. Yeah, a little different. (laughs) Yeah. 
Does that, does that kind of make sense that looking at the other side of that? Because a lot of them thought it was going to die away because slavery really picked up even more of a degree after the Revolutionary War sure. with the development of the cotton gin. Well, so, I mean, and definitely that's that's completely true because also, you know, knowing that England couldn't do anything about slavery here, whether they would have or not, I don't really know. I'm not going to, you know, try to expand on that. But I think that founding document and the independence document <laughs> – what what I think those are in my mind, it's it's the ultimate ugly compromise. Because granted, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, because well of course Jefferson did want to put the all people are all free people are created equal, whatever it was. It had to be qualified and changed, but his intention was probably at his heart, regardless of all the shit that he was actually doing when he went back to Monticello. He did want yeah. to end this. People did see it. Madison, even, who kind of came to bat for it later. These guys, especially the Northerners, they really did want to abandon this and get rid of it. But they knew that they could not do that because in order to break away from England, they couldn't yeah. not have the southern half of what was America at the time come with them. And they knew that if they put anything in there that said they were going to kill slavery – they would never have a full deck of cards to go up against England. And I think that compromise is it's really easy to see because you had to have not only a constitutional amendment to end slavery, but you also had to have over 618,000 deaths to end slavery, yeah. which is the yeah. Civil War. So it's like, I, it's, you know, it's funny. I never thought about it this way, especially not growing up. For instance, with World War One and World War Two, the more I learn about it, the more I see them as... It's Act 1 and Act 2. It's not two separate things. One caused the other. The Revolutionary War and the Civil War, I just see them now as it's one long period that led from point A to point B. And all the shit that happened in between the two was basically about this fucked up compromise that Jefferson and the founders made to keep slavery in some part of it and hope that it goes away. But the functionality of the constitution as a document was functionally pro-slavery because it didn't stop it. What I'm getting at is when we're teaching these things to children and if the 1619 project didn't come along and try to bring this to the fore, I don't think that I... I, I'll tell you what, it's taken me 33 years to understand this this way, and it's only in the last, like, three or four that I figured this all out, and it's because I've been digging like a freaking coal miner on this shit. So, you know, do you yeah. think your understanding of history now would be different had in high school something like the 1619 curriculum been active? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really good point. And by the way, I think you made some amazing points there, you know, as far as uh, like the the compromise, right? Because that's mm -hmm. that's general. Like now I wouldn't even like like I said, I, I try to be very careful in what I tell my students opinion wise. I, I, I believe right. it was a compromise. Right. But mm -hmm. like I want them to make that decision. Um, so it's a difference between teaching philosophy and, and your actual opinion. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, but I think that that's a really good point because. You know, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I haven't forgotten your other question, but I want to address this first. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's a really good point because there's so many compromises that went along the way, even besides after the, the Declaration of Independence, which and we've talked about this before, originally had other, you know, uh, anti-slave messages in it before it got revised, right? Mm -hmm. Because not everybody could agree on it. And it, it, it is overall, I, I believe, a, a compromise 
um, whether we like that or not. You know, we could say they shouldn't have compromised, but then maybe there's not a country. Yeah, right? it, I, I don't know. That, right? I mean, there's, you can't really go back in time. But you're absolutely even, right there. Check. It is a bit Machiavellian. And, and it's like, yeah, you're kind of right about that, where it's like, you know, if if you throw that stuff in that document and the South doesn't come along, I don't think we're winning that one. And I don't think there is an us after that. So you're right on that. Yeah. And some, it, I mean, hard to tell, but yeah. It's very hard to tell. And if you look at like uh, the different compromises that happened throughout the years, like there's, there's a good amount of compromises that, that came along. Like you have, uh, we were talking, I think a little bit the other day, like the Missouri compromise, right? right? Was, was, was a big one, right? And that's, you know, not, not to go into crazy amounts of detail on all these things, but, you know, it, it's a balance between something that's going to benefit the slave states and something that's going to benefit uh, the, the the free states, right? So, so wait, um, the, the Missouri Compromise, just so I've got it right, that was an effort to, it was during the expansion period of America when we were tacking on new states and it was who was going to be a slave state and who wasn't going to be. Am I correct? Yeah, you're 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 right on point with that. So I guess it's a probably important thing to talk about. So the Missouri Compromise, what what's going to happen with that is you're going to get um, there's going to be two territories that want to enter, right? Because usually one's entering on each side. You're going to get uh, Maine's going to enter as a, a free state, right? And Missouri's going to enter as a slave state. And then there's also the, the 3630 latitude longitude uh, Missouri Compromise line. Okay, hmm. so at that point, there's not supposed to be any slavery after that, uh, above that line, after that point, right? Because there is a little bit before that point. Um, and so uh, this actually worried a lot of southern states because uh, the only territory they had besides that at that point was the Arkansas Territory that could have been uh, done as a you know, a, a slave state. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of unorganized territory that obviously is eventually going to become a state, yeah. but we didn't have the, the Spanish uh, possess land over uh, westward yet. Right. So, well, I mean, and then there's, yeah, go ahead. No, Sorry. no, I'm just saying it's, it's interesting because not only bringing these things in as off the bat a slave state, that's one part of the, the long form chess here. The other major yeah. thing is that it's, it's just about a power dynamic. You know, if you've got more Absolutely. slave states versus less northern states, there's in Congress, there's different numbers of populations and shit like that. And who, who gets to make the rules going forward? You know, it behooved them to make sure that they were still making slave states. And there's shit like the, the three-fifth compromise, you know, which is, which is a, or sorry, what is it? Three-fifths. Yeah. Three-fifths compromise. Yeah, you're right. it's, it's, I, what? The South effectively was 60% overrepresented by that based on their population. Cause you were only, you, you got the benefit of counting the slaves at least in part in your population which gives you more uh you know members in the house of representatives but also since it's only three-fifths you don't have to get taxed on that the same way you're not paying the same amount of taxes based on your population so it's like there's just you see it you see so many different moments of america bending over backward to keep what you know i'll I'll do the air quotes fairness based on who's slave state and who's not but it's like what you're doing is perpetuating a system that is abhorrent from anyone's perspective even the guys who wrote the declaration of independence i don't think that i ever thought about it this way ever have you well I, i think that I don't know. I, I guess as I started studying history more and more, I didn't see it as a kind of like you said uh, pretty much before. 
is it's kind of like a gradual lead up to the Civil War, right? Mm-hmm. All of these these compromises are just a ticking time bomb until the Civil War goes, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of arguments over the Missouri Compromise, and then you have there's. Uh, uh, like you said, the three fifths compromise is another one. And then there's another one with the compromise of, of 1850. Um, that's the same thing with, with uh, states entering with California is going to get admitted as a free state while the, the territory of New Mexico um, is going to uh, allow slavery. Um, you know, so it's, it's not banning it, but I, I think actually the compromise of 1850 has a lot to do with uh, popular sovereignty. So they're going to, the state is going to decide for itself. Right. right. Uh, based on the population. Like Texas later and stuff like that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't quote me on that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, that's what I haven't looked at that in a little Understood. bit. So yeah. So that's why I think like it's, it's a constant compromise and you even have things like the Kansas Nebraska act where there's like to, to try to keep the union together. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of compromises made and you could, we could all certainly say that's not a good thing. Um, I, I imagine it was made to try to keep the union together. Uh, mm-hmm. but like at some point it's going to have to be addressed, which does bring us to the civil war, obviously. Yeah. And so in us talking candidly about these very archaic things, and, and I don't expect every American to really know most of it. And the only reason we do is cause it's, it's an active pursuit of ours. But I'm going to give you a quote, and you might know who it's from. Um, yeah. And and I think that it's just kind of in in our in our 2020 world, we're at an inflection point when you talk about 1619, and then you talk about the other side. And the quote goes like this: "Quote: Our children are instructed from propaganda tracts that try to make students ashamed of their own history." Now, can can you guess? That would be yeah, yeah yeah okay. I believe that's 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 our current president. Probably. Yeah, I, I I hesitate to even bring him into the fore fully because I know it just kind of derails everything, and I never really want to do that. But that's kind of when we talk about like the other side, President Trump and the Republican Party, and and a lot of I, I'm not sure where these influences are coming from. They look at something like the 1619 Project, and they see it as damaging they see it as a a violent destruction of the understanding we have of our own history and they're asking for specific they, they've actually uh put forward a new curriculum which would combat 1619 which is called um patriotic education i'm not 100 percent sure what's in there because they haven't released it all yet but i it's it's wild to see now that you really do have, you've got two sides here. We're right back yeah. to the two sides. 1619, which is, I think maybe there are some leaps in there, but I know that they expressly have said that they don't want to take over the curriculum. This is this should be additive. Like you said, it should be incorporated and understood and expanded on. And then you have another side of it, which would not only refute it, but actively erase it, not talk about it, and and try and steer in every other possible direction as a teacher kind of being put into the middle of this where, you know, as you said, your mission is to try and give a, a student, a child, the best possible chance at making their own decisions. What do you think about this kind of active battlefield that we have in our schools? So... Like, and you probably know exactly where I'm going to go because you know my, my philosophy behind teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that if it's if you're not talking about the the hard 
topics to, to talk about as far as the neg- negative things that have happened in America, then you're, you're not doing a good job. Right. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you should not just be talking about that. Right. You should be talking about everything. Right. Because I feel like if you only do one side of it, then you're clearly avoiding something. And then you're not talking about historical analysis. You're pushing a historical narrative, whatever mm-hmm. that narrative may be, positive or negative. Right. So that's why I think that, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with with uh, pulling uh, a lot of the, the important information out of the 1619 project. But. At the same time, like on unsettled history, right? Because I, I don't want students saying that no matter what, that it was the main cause of this of the, the Revolutionary War was to preserve slavery. Because I, I think that without you know, if they decide that on their own based on seeing both sides of it, that's fine, right? Because then they're they're coming to their 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 own conclusion based on their ability to analyze the different information, right? And mm-hmm. I would never tell them they're wrong. Right. That's their decision to make. Well, so, so that's that's yeah. a really interesting point, because I, you know, and, and I see I, I understand your goal and I understand how you approach it because I know you well. But that part at the end there where you say I would never tell them that they're wrong. I'm not saying that maybe that's your duty unless it's like really demonstrative things. Obviously, people are going to say crazy things. You know, you look back in our history at some of the worst moments of how it was taught. You're talking about the segregation schools. You're talking about, you know, Jim Crow and the lost cause narrative, things that are on purpose politically designed to change people's understandings of the past, specifically the Civil War and all those kind of things. And you look at the result, you know, the fruit that's harvested from that kind of a planting, it's it's rotten. And you have to dig that shit out of there sometimes. And you happen to be getting these kids at a really important part of their growth do you find do, do you think i don't know i, I gotta push you on that you know it's not correcting people and and allowing them to come to a completely wrong uh end game and of course history is always evolving and it's always changing you do you ever see yourself as a defender of of objective truth in some ways as a teacher yeah, oh, oh, most certainly. Yeah, I mean, maybe I, I didn't explain myself well there. I, I, if something is historically inaccurate, right, mm-hmm. then obviously I'm going to correct it, right? If somebody says, so, like, I think I, I mentioned this example to you in the past. Like, I had a student claim that Abraham Lincoln owned a bunch of slaves, right? <laughs> right. Now, like, I was like, I don't know where this guy's coming from. I said, oh, where did you find that? And he was, like, positive about it. Yeah. You know? And then so I said, okay, well, do you have any information on that? And he goes, well, no, but I know it happened. So I'm like, okay, well, let me do some research and I'll get back to you because, you know, that's obviously a, a pretty big claim. So and all the research I found, like, there was really no standing for that. And then when I told the kid that the next day, he goes, oh, well, I guess I, I misremembered. Like, it was like no big deal because he was so positive about it the day before. So people are certainly going to be, I'm certainly going to check people when there's a historical inaccuracy. What I mean is when, when you're forming an opinion about something that's not settled history, mm-hmm. right, then... I don't think it's my place to be like, hey, this is how you should think about this, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not good. Now, I may challenge them on it, right? I may say, hey, have you considered this, this, and this, right? Mm-hmm. Now, now, that's regardless if they're on a similar point of view or not as me. My goal is for the my students never to know any of my leanings in history or criminal justice or anything. Hmm. Right. I play devil's advocate to literally anything they say, because I, I think it helps them strengthen their understanding 
of different things. And if it's something that's truly off in their thinking, then it's going to be very easy to question it in a way where they're not going to arrive at that same conclusion because it's based on historical inaccuracies. Yeah, and, Does that kind of make sense? Definitely. And fighting for your perspective, having to defend your perspective. Yes. And I like yes. the idea of the devil's advocate in the classroom especially because you could be taught something and you know it in your heart and even if it is completely true and you start picking at it it forces them to objectively go deeper find out why they think that where they learned it so and i i mean that's i think that's savvy i think that's a good way to do it yeah and that's what i found at least because i've had a lot of people you know uh, a lot of students change their perspective on things or they at least have a, a better understanding whether they're strengthening their their feeling on a certain topic because now they they know better why they feel the way that they do about a certain thing in history right because now they're like all right well why do you feel that way why, how why do you see what's driving you to arrive at that conclusion right because if they're actually really analyzing history they should be able to you know explain their opinion like if you're if we're doing a writing assignment right they they need to pull from different like so a lot of the things that we do in classes we'll do different document-based analysis and we'll we'll look at different uh whether they're primary source documents sometimes they're secondary source documents whatever they may be they may have to first find out if the the historical source like are you first of all are you trusting that historical source and why Right. Like what's who, who wrote it. Right. Because the perspective of somebody that wrote something is probably important. Um, you know what? Uh, when you're analyzing that, like what what conclusion is it driving you to? And whenever you're looking at that, you may look at like five or six different documents. Like we just did one on the uh, the Sand Creek Massacre, which I know you're oh, familiar yeah, with. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So we looked at a few different um, perspectives on that one. Not that they're. I mean, the Santa Creek Massacre is pretty much, you know, straightforward as far as what happened there. But you see it through the eyes of a few different people that were eyewitnesses to the account. So you can gain a fuller understanding of what's going on there, if that makes sense. No, definitely. Right? It, it's wild because I, I'm so thrilled. I mean, it's horrifying, but I'm thrilled that you're teaching the Sand Creek Massacre because that's – I mean, so for, for anyone who might not know that buzzword, it was uh, – it was what it was, a, a Sand Creek, in Sand Creek, I think Utah, a lot of Indians were murdered by uh, Union soldiers, and that's, you know, there's a lot more to it, but it's a horrible, horrible moment, and I just like to know that you're actually teaching that. That gives me some hope that there is at least a chance at understanding that, like, America and Americans and how we've come to be what we are, if baked in our American cake are a lot of freaking razor blades, you know? Oh yeah, there's there's plenty of uh, things that are uh, horrific things to, to talk about for sure, mm -hmm. um, and that's why, like you know, we've been saying since the beginning, getting that full picture of of the good, the bad, and everything in between is important because if you're not doing that, then there there may be an an ulterior motive, right? If you're yeah. not showing, and that's why I, I constantly check myself, like, am I really showing? all sides of it if i feel the need to not say something like why is that you know like i try to question myself and you know this when we talk about a multitude of different subjects if i feel in any way that like oh i don't like that well why don't i like that like i try to question mm -hmm. my feeling on that because you know people need to have an accurate accounting of history i i never want someone to tell me well you know i explained to them something uh, and i misled them in any way that would be uh, a travesty yeah 
Now, I, and I appreciate how you how you do that. Um, there's, I'll, I'll I'll wrap this kind of interview up, and I really do appreciate your generosity with your time here, Josh. And there's there's one part of that Trump quote that it definitely does ring, maybe not true, but it, it rings in my ears, and and it's touchy. So the quote again is, "Our children are instructed from propaganda tracks that try to make students ashamed of their own history." Now, whether that's true or not, I think he pro- maybe he was talking about things like the 1619, things that are going to try and do that. But the thing in there that I think actually makes some kind of sense is ashamed. How does shame factor into understanding what it is to be an American and and how we got here? Because we've done great things. We've created a, a great nation in, in many ways, but there are some things that, maybe not shame is the deepest is the right word but like i do feel shame for a lot of stuff and you know this is coming from a white dude it's not like i can really hide from any of this granted none of my ancestors had anything to do with it i was not alive during that time whether we're talking about slavery or the genocide of the indians and all that stuff but that concept of shame no one wants to be ashamed of their country and no one wants to be told to be ashamed of the things like thomas jefferson that we hold up as our american god do you think shame is a useful tool, a dangerous tool? Do you, you know, do you weaponize that for good or bad in teaching? What do you think? That's an interesting question. I'll be honest. I don't know if I've ever thought about it in that way that you just proposed it. Um, I guess when, when you say weaponizing it in the classroom, right? As far as that, I don't think my goal is ever to make students feel a a certain way. Now, if they feel that way about things that happened in the past, like that's fine. They they arrived at that, at that conclusion. Um, I think it depends on your perspective of, of history, right? Um, that's That's a really good question. Yeah. I mean, I look, there's plenty of things in the past that were not good. There's a lot of bad history but there's a lot of good things that have happened as well mm-hmm. right and that's not to when i say there's a lot of good things happened well it's not to discount all the all the evils that have, have happened in the past because as we said I, I clearly i clearly cover them yeah, yeah um but i think the one thing that we have to really stand by whether you agree with the 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 reasons that the principles in the declaration of independence were put they were put there right so I think that no matter what, we have to strive to live up to those principles, right? Because people are imperfect, for sure, obviously. Um, as you study history, you always can, can find that, for sure. I don't think there's any really perfect people, uh, in the, in the, at least in the curriculum that I write. I haven't really found anybody perfect there. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, so I, I think that instead of looking to the people, right, and you could certainly you know, put anybody on trial, I think it's important to look to the principles of our country. Now, you may disagree with why they were written or whatever, but I think that those principles are something that we should continually strive for and continually try to make our nation the the best possible. So I think that's the way I would feel about that is maybe not ashamed, but hopeful that we continue to make everything a more equal uh, America. If that kind of makes sense. So I'd say I'd like to be more hopeful that we keep no matter what, because there's always going to be, you know, challenges in our country and in any country. But we can live by those principles. I think we're in a lot better shape. 
I feel you on that, Josh. And I, I, I'm glad dudes like you are in the classroom. I look around and I see the way things are remembered and the battle for how they're remembered. And it scares you because sometimes you feel like you, you've got the answers right here. Not answers, but like you can just look it up. It's right here. And no matter what's being held in front of people, they're not going to ever go that way. And I feel like one of the major reasons is where they're from how they grew up, what they were taught in their formative years, because course correcting is hard. But if you start from a good foundation and from people like yourself who are going to make us question ourselves as Americans, not to feel shame, but to make us better because of that, I think that's probably one of the only arrows in our quiver to make ourselves more understanding of our own past and then how that makes us want to create our future. So, Josh, thank you so much for spending the time, man. I, I hope uh, whenever I have uh, some child in the future that they'll uh, end up in one of your classrooms, whether it be uh, at this level or higher education or, or whatever that might be. So I really appreciate it, Josh. Thank you. It was an absolute honor to be on the War Daddy <laughs> podcast. And uh, I just hope everything I, I, I said on there uh, you know, made sense because, you know, obviously learning history, like you said yourself, is so important today. And that's always the goal is to to just explain everything and then you could understand it better. Um, and that's really it. Cool, man. You know, Josh, that is it. Thank you very much, brother. I will be in touch. Thank you. Well, that's that. I hope you enjoyed this nice little candid conversation between two history-obsessed amigos. As you can imagine, it's a conversation that's just going to keep going on and on and on. For instance, the, the Constitution question mm. is a great question. There's plenty of people that feel on both sides of that. Yeah, and you, you know, using so, Frederick Douglass there is so perfect because, like, I wasn't really thinking about that in the moment. And I hope you, too, will keep your dialogues going with whomever you're arguing with or learning from because every one of those conversations can be a bridge, bringing people to a place where they build a shared understanding on common ground. Nor, at least it'll let you know what the hell you're up against. Stay tuned. I'll be continuing the exploration of this topic with Jared Frederick, author, college professor, and former historical guide at the Gettysburg National Park on the next episode. Oh, and hey, if you're an American, November 3rd is right around the corner. I don't care whose name is on the ticket, but Get your damn ballot in the box. So many have struggled, fought, and died for your right to vote. The best way to honor their legacy is to exercise the right that they bled for. Do not take it for granted. Vote.